Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come, dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Annie, I'll turn it over to you to welcome our speaker this evening. Our speaker this evening is the president of Catholic Answers. He writes and lectures on the lives of Catholic heroes and villains and has addressed audiences across the United States and in Europe as well. Christopher Check served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the Marine Corps, after which he served for 19 years as vice president of the Rockford Institute. In 2012, he joined Catholic Answers as the director of development and was named president in 2015. Please join me in welcoming Christopher Check. Thank you, Annie. We have so much ground to cover. And of course, it'll only scratch the surface of this uh, extraordinary man in history and his extraordinary story. There is a handout that will help you follow along. Uh, there's also a couple of maps. I won't refer to the maps throughout the talk, but if we mention a river like the Rhine or something or the town of Aachen or something like that, especially when we get into, I know it's the case for me, I have a pretty good command of the Italian peninsula, but when I get into uh, Central and Eastern Europe, it's confusing. And so the map uh, will be helpful. I'm, 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 I've got a lot of information in here. And so uh, my justification for doing that is that you're going to be able to go back and watch it again a couple of times. So let's start with a story. The holy bishop waited in his tent, praying his office. At 82, his mortal frame had slowed, but he had no less of the zeal with which he began his evangelization of the Germans four decades prior. Since felling the Donar Oak with his axe, the sacred tree of the pagans, Winfred, also called Boniface, had brought the gospel from England to the barbarians of Bavaria and Thuringia. He was supported by the Frankish mayor of the palace, a guy I like to call Charles the Hammer, right? Or Charles Martel, who at the Battle of Tours, another important date, 732, had stopped in its tracks the Muslim advance across the Pyrenees and into Southern France. So with the help of Charles Martel, with the endorsement, if you will, with the political endorsement of Charles Martel, Boniface establishes four dioceses east of the Rhine. And when he's not baptizing German pagans, 
he preached the gospel west throughout the kingdom of the Franks. Nearly two centuries before Boniface, St. Remigius had done what? He had baptized Clavis, the king of the Franks, and the eldest daughter of the church, France, was born. Boniface took France into his care, and he made formal the special union between the chair of Peter and the Franks when he, as Pope St. Zachary's own representative, anointed the son of Charles Martel, Pepin the Short, as the first Carolingian king. Boniface's support of Pepin was deliberate and dynasty changing. The power of the Merovingian kings had faded, and the real political power in France was held by what we call the mayors of the palace. They had the real authority in France. By anointing Pepin, Boniface secured the Franks as the special protector of Holy Mother Church. So aided, he ventured in his old age back among the Germans to Frisia on the southern shore of the North Sea. He baptizes the Frisians and he preaches the mercy of Jesus Christ. So it happened that on the 5th of June in the year of our Lord, 754, Boniface waited with his entourage of monks for an embassy from the Frisians who were coming to him to receive confirmation. As the sun rose, Boniface, stepping out of his tent, saw not a band of neophytes, but a gang of bandits brandishing clubs and swords. His faithful attendants rose to defend him, but Boniface enjoined them to set down their weapons, calling his clergy to his side and holding in his arms the holy relics with which he traveled, the bishop said, sons, cease fighting, lay down your arms. The hour to which we have long looked forward is near and the day of our release is at hand. Take comfort in the Lord and endure with gladness the suffering he has mercifully ordained. Put your trust in him, and he will grant deliverance to your souls. Be of stout heart. Fear not them who kill the body, for they cannot slay the soul, which continues to live forever. Rejoice in the Lord. Anchor your hope in God, for without delay, he will render to you the reward of eternal bliss and grant you an abode with the angels in his heaven above. Endure with steadfast mind the sudden onslaught of death, that you may be able to reign evermore with Jesus Christ. No sooner had Boniface said these inspiring words and fired the hearts of his priests and monks that the heroic martyrs were swallowed by the fury of the pagan mob. They rushed upon the holy men with swords and every kind of warlike weapon, staining the bodies with the precious blood, staining their bodies with the precious blood of the martyrs. The death of St. Boniface, apostle to the Germans, was not a defeat. It was a victory for Jesus Christ. And the seed of the faith 
that Boniface had planted with four decades of establishing monasteries, preaching, writing, and baptizing among the Franks and among the Germans would be watered by his holy blood. Boniface had chopped down the pagan oak tree and he had replaced it with the vine of Christ. The man who would tend that vine among the Franks and Germans and indeed build a great vineyard for the church was at the moment of Boniface's death, not yet a man. He was on the cusp of manhood. He was 12 years old. His name was Charles. He is known to us as Carlos Magnus or Charles the Great, or as the jongleurs who sang the Chanson de Geste in the heart of the French, in the halls of the French chivalry, two centuries later would call him Charlemagne. One month after Boniface received his crown of martyrdom on the Frisian frontier, the 12-year-old Charles would receive in Paris another kind of crown, one that foretells the boy's future, a future that would forever change Europe. Charlemagne and his age present us with a vast topic, which we can attempt to make manageable by dividing into three sections. I mentioned, I think I list these on, on, on the handout. The first, the expansion by Charlemagne, largely by military means of the kingdom of the Franks into what would become the Holy Roman Empire. Two, the events surrounding the coronation of Charlemagne in Rome by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day, 800 AD. And three, what we today call the Carolingian Renaissance. This was the fruit of Charlemagne's deliberate effort to restore learning to the West. And we have to underscore here, not learning for learning's sake, but learning to build a culture in which the Christian religion would flourish. Now, those are the three things that we'll try to cover this evening in two parts, I understand, but we're going to leave a lot out, a lot of other elements that are in fact important to the Charlemagne story, and we're just going to have to be content to name them. So these include his family life, uh, the affection that he had for his children, his actually tendency to dote on his children, especially his daughters, uh, his tolerance of his children's moral transgressions, his own moral transgressions, right? Charlemagne himself and his age have a, how can we say, unrefined understanding of marriage. Right? So, so the, marriage is something that in the history of the church is being clarified uh, during this time. Uh, and we'll, we'll speak to this a little bit. Um, his extraordinary stature, probably close to seven feet tall, his uh, 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 amazing strength of will, the, the expansion of a increasingly sophisticated European economy under Charlemagne, the development of new trade routes to the north and up into the Baltic seas as Mediterranean trade routes increasingly fell 
to Islamic uh, domination. And uh, the simultaneous growth along with these economic structures of more sophisticated political structures throughout Western Europe. Um, of these last two, economics and politics, it, it should be said that Charlemagne, with as with all of the acts of his public life, created these in the service of the expansion of a kingdom that was, my friends, this is if you if you forget everything else about tonight, remember this. He did all these things in the in the service of the expansion of a kingdom that was explicitly conscious of its Christian identity. That's why Charlemagne did what he did. So for all that we have to leave out, by looking at these three events that I mentioned, the expansion of the empire by military means, the coronation on Christmas Day, 800 AD, Carolingian Renaissance, by, by looking at these three events and their effects, we should see Charlemagne at least get our start to get our imagination around it, see Charlemagne as he understood himself and has history has revealed him to be. Charlemagne was the man whom Providence chose to bring to Europe the political order necessary for four things. One, the organization of the church, the spread of the faith. Two, the flowering of learning. And three, and four rather, the evangelization of the Germans. What, what are these four taken together mean? Charlemagne united Christendom. There is no understanding of Europe that does not locate Charlemagne as its father. I know this is uh, not correct to say now, but it's just historically true. And, and there is no proper understanding of Charlemagne that does not locate the Catholic faith at the center of his motives and actions. So the, this is the thing, what he did and why he did what he did, pardon me, that you must remember from this evening. If you forget all the details of the various campaigns, et cetera, et cetera, the names, the places. So let's pick up our story again. St. Boniface is losing his life to pagan fury. The Pope in Rome, a man named Stephen II, was completing an arduous journey over the Alps to visit the King of the Franks. And who is that? Who's the King of the Franks? Pepin. So Pepin sends his son at this time, Charles, Charlemagne, Charles, 12 years old. Pepin sends his son at the head, at the head of an embassy to welcome the Pope. My friends, this is the first time in history that a Pope travels to France. Why? Because French wine is better than Italian wine? Well, yes, it is. But uh, as hard as it may be to imagine, there was a more pressing need. The Lombards, the tribe of, in northern Italy, what the region we still today call Lombardia, um, the Lombards are, 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 are at war with the Pope. They're encroaching on papal territory. Just a, a quick point here that we're just going to have to gloss over, but for the sake of informing you, the Lombards for the longest time were what? 
They were Arians. Everybody thinks the Arian problem was uh, solved, you know, with Athanasius. It wasn't. It persisted. And a lot of, um, I mean, the, the, the question was defined by the church, to be sure. The answer, the doctrine was defined. But um, about the person and natures of Jesus Christ. Uh, but but the, the Arian heresy persists and it makes its way west because this region of Northern Italy is um, uh, evangelized by bishops and priests from the East. So the Lombards have a kind of an Arian character to them in their culture. If you ever go to Ravenna, you will see the evidence of this. There are, there are to this day, uh, Aryan churches. I mean, there are museums now, but um, but churches built by Aryans. The mosaics are magnificent. You still kind of feel kind of creepy going into them, but nonetheless, at, at this point in our story, when the Lombards are at war with the Pope, they're no longer Aryans. But I mention this to you because there's a long history of divide and uh, acrimony, if you will, between the Holy See and the Lombards. So that kind of informs, uh, there's, a, there's a religious disagreement at the root, although it, it no longer persists. There's a religious disagreement at the root of, the, uh, of this political disagreement. So they're encroaching on papal territory and th- who is the political ruler in Lombardia is the exarch from the Byzantine empire, right? Or the Roman empire in the East. And we'll, We'll do refresher on that a little bit later. Um, But the Byzantine exarch is no longer capable of controlling the Lombards, who are basically savages, right? They're barbarians. Uh, They're not they're not Romans. And and he had basically given up Ravenna, which was the capital of the Eastern Empire in the West. So we're, we're after the well, you know, four centuries after the fall of Rome in the three after the fall of Rome in the, in, in, in the West. So uh, the Exarch had abandoned Ravenna. Uh, the, the, the Lombards had surrounded. And Stephen, Pope Stephen, is coming in person, first time a Pope journeys to France, basically to call in the marker that's owed to the papacy by the Carolin- Carolingians, why? What, what, what's the debt? Well, it's that Zachary had given his blessing through Boniface, his spiritual endorsement to the rule of the Carolingians. So you follow me? Right. So this is why Stephen is coming. And at the Abbey of Saint-Denis, Stephen uh, crowns Pepin, the king, and he places coronets, you know, smaller crowns, atop the heads of his two sons, Charles and Carloman, who are Pepin's heirs. Now, this is not the last time that a pope is going to lay hands on Charles's head. So far as Pepin was concerned, his rule was now confirmed by the pope. There was no question what the Frankish king needed to do. He assembles an army and he crosses the Alps to pacify the Lombards. Of the childhood of the man who would be heralded, we're talking about Charlemagne now, of the childhood of the man who would be heralded by an anonymous poet in 799 as Rex Pater Europae, so king and father of Europe, 
we really don't know very much. Uh, in fact, even the date of his birth is debated. Most historians have settled on 742. Uh, Charles was illegitimate at birth. His father, Pepin the Short, finally made an honest woman of his mother, a woman named Bertrada, uh, seven years, or excuse me, several years after Charles's birth. Uh, Pepin was a Christian, to be sure, but nonetheless, he shared with all the Franks, like I say, an unrefined understanding of marriage, which the church would take some centuries to tighten. Indeed, Charlemagne's own marriage bed was less exclusive than his biographer Einhard would have preferred. But I mean, we can be scandalized by this a little bit, but we should understand the conversions of peoples, often like the conversions of individual human persons, are events that the church sees to over many years, not in a matter of moments. We can imagine that the young Charles attended the Paris school erected by his father, where he studied theology, scripture, and Latin. But we can also be sure that he listened with delight to the Frankish legends that located the origins of his people in the noble Trojans. My friends, I have to underscore this. The belief in his people's Trojan origins, so the Franks in their own mythology felt that they were descendants of the Trojans, much the way the Romans did, right, with uh, Virgil's Aeneid. Uh, so th th uh, th this belief in the Trojan and their Trojan origins is only going to reinforce in Charles's own imagination that he was in fact a Roman and a successor to the Roman emperors. Uh, Charles devoted his energies as he was growing up to learning to ride and hunt, which is what it's age old training for warriors. He, as he grew, he would join his father on the field of battle in defense of the Catholic Church against her enemies. When Charles was 26, Pepin the Short went to his reward. Now, at this time in the history of France, we do not have primogeniture, which is what? That is the estates and all the holdings of the king or whoever the nobleman goes to the firstborn son. That is still centuries away. So, according to the Frankish custom, and also Important, according to the anointing by the Pope, Pepin divided his kingdom, which had grown under his rule to include Franks as well as Germans, right? He divided his kingdom between Charles and his younger brother, who was 17. So Charles was 26 and Carloman uh, 17. In the dividing of the kingdom, it might have looked to Charles like Carloman's share, which included Paris and the Abbey at Saint-Denis, right? Uh, the old capital of France at Soissons, and perhaps of greatest importance, the border with Italy. That all might have looked like the better half. On the other hand, Charles's share surrounded his brothers on two sides. In any case, I, you know, I think of King Lear there dividing up uh, among his daughters. Um, but Pepin 
in any case, uh, had divided his kingdom principally with an eye to preserving the boundaries of the various nations that he had conquered. If Pepin had hoped that his brothers were going to rule their shares in a peaceful spirit of cooperation, um, his own Macbeth-like rise to power would have warned him otherwise. The tension between the two brothers grew when it came time to suppress a rebellion in Aquitaine, which is the agriculturally rich region in southwestern France that the brothers rule in common. My goodness, my friends, Aquitaine is always, you know, a, a, it, throughout the history of France, a, a source of, of, of dispute. Um, well past Charlemagne, all the way, it, it's central to the dispute that causes the Hundred Years' War, which uh, is eventually resolved by the uh, generalship of the Lorraine peasant girl, Joan of Arc. But, so it's always an area under, under dispute. Um, but, uh, but the brothers rule it in common, um, though he made with his army uh, an initial march to quell the rebellion in Aquitaine, uh, Carloman did not join his troops in battle, and he left it to Charles to handle single-handedly, which Charles did swiftly and with ease. So Charles demonstrates in quelling the rebellion in Aquitaine who the superior military commander is. The brothers then fought over the position of papal protector. Uh, Stephen II is succeeded by Stephen III. He comes to power amidst this bitter factional fighting. And he himself, Stephen II, is no means secure on the chair of Peter. Carloman intrigues in Rome against his brother and more Macbeth-like interference. Um, in this case, uh, the boy's mother, there's always like a mom who's interfering, right? The boy's mother, Bertrada, Bertrada, who is a woman of strong will. And you see these women in French history, St. Louis's mother, for example, right? A woman of strong will, uh, to be sure. Um, and also probably Bertrada is of great stature because we can feel pretty confident that Charlemagne did not get his seven foot height from his from someone from his dad whose name was Pepin the Short. So Bertrada attempts to intervene in the fraternal conflict over the papal protector, but she only makes matters worse. And in the midst of one intrigue, attempted to strengthen the Carolingian position in Italy by arranging a marriage between Charles and the daughter of the Lombard king. Uh, the marriage, to say the least, did not please the Pope. In fact, he sent a letter uh, to Charles. It's, it's charmingly direct. Uh, he says, um, what folly is this? Your noble Frankish people, the light of all other peoples and your illustrious and noble line, sullied by the foul-smelling and treacherous Lombards who are not even entitled to call a nation and who, as is well known, are the cause of leprosy. 
So we get from Steve in there what he thinks of the Lombards and of this uh, potential marriage. So maybe Charles takes Pope Stephen's admonition to heart, but for whatever reason, and maybe it's her failure to conceive, he repudiates the Lombard princess. History doesn't even tell us what her name is. Within a year, the Carloman problem is resolved. The year is 1771, when Carloman suddenly succumbs, uh, according to uh, the historians, uh, the chroniclers, to a severe nosebleed, and he dies. So we can imagine some kind of hemorrhage. His vassals overwhelmingly pledge their allegiance to Charlemagne. Providence had decided the fate of the kingdom of the Franks, and at the same moment, the future of Europe, because now Charlemagne is the sole ruler of the Franks. He is soon confronted with that challenge that all empire builders face, even to this very day, the problem of waging wars on two or more fronts. Of people in history, Charlemagne may be the most equal to this task. His campaigns reveal a great deal about him. He's a great field commander, but it's really his genius for logistics, right? Attributed to Napoleon, another great, if not a good man, a great military leader, right? Who, to whom it is attributed, although I don't think you'll ever find it. The army marches on his stomach, but Charlemagne's genius as a logistician that permits him to meet the demands for personnel and supplies and to move them across this growing empire uh, in order to expand his borders to the south and to the north and to the to the north and to the east. To the south of the Kingdom of the Franks, and here maybe looking at your maps will be helpful, especially that black and white one. To the south, the Kingdom of the Franks, the Lombards are in rebellion against the Pope. And this situation is exacerbated by what? Exacerbated by what? That Charlemagne had repudiated his Lombard wife and married in her place a princess from Swabia named Hildegard. And so this aggravated relationships between not only Charles and the Lombards, but between the Lombards and the papacy. Meanwhile, in the Northeast, Charles faces the age-old enemy, the Franks, who? The Saxons. And these, uh, we, when we hear that word Saxon, you know, it's common for Americans to think Anglo-Saxons, people of the British Isles, but of course there are Germanic people originally. Um, savage Germanic people who occupied the region between the southern shores of the North Sea and the Baltic Sea. And they made regular incursions into the kingdom of the Franks. And they were not nice people. They burned villages. They seized property. They took slaves. They carried off women. Charles concluded that Conquest and conversion of the Saxons was the only way to neutralize the Saxon threat. Striking first into Saxony in 772, he begins what would become a decade-long war. And the contemporary chronicles describe the invasions 
in very succinct terms. He marched first into Saxony, capturing the castle of Erisburg. He proceeded as far as the Irminsul, destroying this idol and carried away the gold and the silver, which he found. There's a detail in here, my friends, the Irminsul, and I think I made note of it on the handout there. The Irminsul was an ancient idol. It was a giant tree trunk that the pagans believed to be one of the pillars of heaven and a site also of regular human sacrifice to include Christian missionaries following half a century later in the footsteps of St. Boniface. Like Boniface before him, Charlemagne came tearing into the pagan sacred places. He destroyed them and he claimed the sites for Jesus Christ. The burning down of the Irminsul is probably the first recorded instance of a layman undertaking this kind of action to this date performed by missionary that, that, that up to this date had been performed by missionary Christian bishops, right? We read, for example, in the dialogues of Gregory the Great from the sixth century of um, uh, bishops in Italy tearing down pagan temples and things of this nature. But this is probably the first instance of a layman doing it. Um, if this is so, it speaks volumes about, again, to my early point, it speaks volumes about Charles's understanding of himself as the leader of a Christian army, making safe the hinterlands of Europe. Why? So the Roman clergy can come in and evangelize. I, I, I like to think of, you may accept this analogy, you may think it's crazy. I like to think of Charlemagne in light of the conquistadores in Mexico, right? Uh, who, who come in and they are brutal men as Charlemagne was, uh, but it takes that kind of brutality to conquer the Aztecs, to make it safe for the Franciscan men, uh, missionaries. And then eventually Our Lady, of course, uh, with, with the magnificent uh, miracle of Our Lady Guadalupe. But, but I, so I, so I, I kind of think of Charlemagne as a forebear of the, of the conquistadores in Mexico. Uh, but Charlemagne and his men, this is the important point, undertook the work of vanquishing those men who practice human sacrifice, like the Aztecs, to make the region safe for the sacrifice of the mass. No sooner had the Saxon front been opened than the Lombard War against the papacy reached the point of crisis. Desiderius, the king of the Lombards. So this is the crisis. He's at war with the he's at war with the Saxons, and then the war opens up again south of him. Again, your map is helpful here to give you a sense of the theater he's operating in, or theaters, right? Desiderius, king of the Lombards, resumes his war against the papal territory. The Pope now is a man named Adrian I. And he calls in the same 
marker that Stephen II did. He writes Charles and he tells him, like his father, you're the patrician of the holy city. You need to come to Rome's defense. Desiderius had brought his army all the way to the gates of Rome. He stopped only when the Pope threatened him with excommunication. Charles attempts to mediate a negotiated settlement. It fails. So over the next three or four months, what does Charles do? He assembles an army in Geneva. And then he crosses the Alps. And this is an arduous march, and it's reminiscent of what? Hannibal's crossing the Alps. The year is uh, summer of 1773. And the subsequent war of the Lombards, both of these are magnificent stories, the crossing and the war with the Lombards are both magnificent stories. Uh, but for our purposes, you'll just have to take my word for it. Charles, as military commander, demonstrates during this campaign, again, a mastery of logistic planning. Um, you know, you got to think, my friends, really limited roads. There are old Roman roads. There is some river traffic, uh, but uh, not a lot of sophisticated um, means of communication. Um, the capacity to move uh, lots of men, to keep them motivated under arduous conditions, kind of a singularity of purpose in battle. Uh, the battlefield skill, the battlefield tactical skill to coordinate envelopments from the rear using pincer movements with a divided force, uh, which is always a danger, right? To divide your force in the face of the enemy um, with a superior army, with his superior army, his, his superior martial skill. Charles swiftly drives Desiderius to seek refuge with his troops within the walls of Pavia, which is, anybody know where that is? It's just south of Milan, who's buried there, St. Augustine, also Boethius. Um, the Lombard king then receives a second surprise. He comes to, he tries to come to terms with Charles. He, he agrees to cede all the papal lands that he's conquered, but Charles has a different resolution in mind. He's gonna settle the Lombard question once and for all, he invests Bavia. He laid siege to Bavia through the winter of 73 and 74. And the following summer, Desiderius is forced to capitulate. Charles doesn't hang him from the tallest tree. What does he do? He allows him to be tonsured so that he can spend the duration of his years in a monastery doing, war, uh, doing penance for waging war against the church. Uh, this Frankish conquest of uh, the Lombards, by the way, is the inspiration for a, a Manzoni, uh, Alessandro Manzoni, who wrote I Promessi Sposi, the greatest work of modern Italian uh, literature, The Betrothed. If you haven't read it, shame on you. Um, but Manzoni wrote a, a tragedy, Adelchi, uh, based on this Frankish conquest of, of the Lombards. Um, but it had a more immediate impact. It basically created the papal states. So we, ref we refer to the, the papal states. This is the beginning. You could say the beginning uh, or the origins of it are when uh, Zachary is uh, communicating through Boniface um, uh, or 
you could say when uh, Stephen uh, goes up, the second goes up into France. So uh, th- th- this is this is kind of taking place. You might say he kind of becomes the first king pope there. But the papal states are really effectively formally created at this moment with the defeat of the Lombards. Um, even before the siege of Pavia was over, Charlemagne visits the Pope. He makes a great display of reverence. He climbs St. Peter's, Constantine St. Peter's, on his knees, kissing each step along the way. Um, the time in Rome that Charlemagne spends in Rome strengthens the, 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 his own conviction that he is called to exercise his extraordinary leadership for the glory of God and the defense of the expansion of the church. Charlemagne and Pope Adrian sign a treaty creating the Republic of St. Peter. And they vastly extend the papal territory into the Lombard lands, uh, which he and the Pope now divide. The allied kingdom of the Franks and the kingdom of the papal states share a border. What's that border called? The Po River. And the papal states would persist for a millennium or more, right? More than a thousand years until when? Until the Masons foment revolution against the church during the Italian Resorgimento uh, and seizing them from blessed Pope Pius IX, the topic for another ICC talk. Um, so th- this, so so you could say Pope Stephen is effectively the kind of the first Pope King papal states formally erected under Adrian. The war war settles any doubt concerning Charlemagne's battlefield leadership. With his winter siege of Pavia, he had demonstrated his capacity to act boldly and decisively, to take great risks, to see them to their conclusion, to retain the loyalty of his men under arduous circumstances. And the war sets a precedent for the treatment of conquered peoples. As king of the Lombards, Charles issues edict after edict to alleviate the famine that's a consequence of the Lombard War. He stops the slave trade that the desperation of the war had given rise to. He makes certain that the citizens of his newly conquered lands had their property returned to them that was taken from them during the war. And, And like Imperial Rome, whose legacy now he's clearly claiming in his own imagination He respects the autonomy of Lombard law, political structure, customs, and culture. This is exactly what the Romans did. Look how much leeway, for example, they give to the Jews, the the ancient Romans did, or the Romans during the empire. So he respects that autonomy of the Lombards. Uh, Charles leaves his four-year-old son, Pepin, uh, managed by a team of advisors, uh, to rule Lombardia. and against the protestations of the Pope, no, stay, you need to stay in Italy. Uh, he leaves Italy. He goes back to the Saxon border to subdue a rebellion of Saxons who are enraged by what? His destruction of the Irmans And so for the next two decades, the, ne- the king of the Franks was engaged in one long energetic war against the enemies of Jesus Christ. You, so you can imagine his seven foot frame towering in the van leading his armies on one march across the other, crisscrossing the terrain of Western Europe, engaging Saxon heathens on the banks of the North Sea, 
but also on his southeastern frontier. So way into, you know, almost like Hungary, for example, uh, the Avars, a uh, Hun-like tribe of horse breeders, uh, were really, truly savage people who had uh, overrun and settled in the eastern Danube Valley. He, where, what did Charlemagne also do? He goes across the Pyrenees into Spain to stem the tide of, the, uh, of Islam. This is a tragic campaign, but what do we get from this? Uh, the most inspiring ballad of the Christian age, right? The Song of Roland comes from this uh, Charlemagne campaign. Uh, again, these details of the campaigns are great stories unto themselves, but we just have to be content with the summary. And more importantly, what? Saying what they mean, right? Identifying their effects. Here it is, 13 years. Charles waged a persistent war of attrition against the pagan Saxon tribes on his northeastern border. He puts ever increasing pressure on the pagans. He issues something called a capitulary. This is a legislative decree that he would later use as he's growing his empire. This particular capitulary said that the failure to accept Christian baptism is punishable by death. Now, this policy may seem to us to lack kind of charity or patience, but this is perhaps what was required to bring to heal the devil worshipers who were terrorizing Christendom's northeastern frontier. The Saxon wars are marred, depending on your perspective. I think that they are marred um, even for the time, because the chroniclers argue as much, even those who admire Charlemagne. But nonetheless, it's a violent and direct age. But they are specifically marred by the massacre. In fact, the decapitation of 4,500 Saxons at Verden in 1783. It's not, it, it, this isn't something that we try, should try to defend. It's probably the, the greatest stain on Charlemagne's reputation, this and his somewhat um, undeveloped understanding of marriage. It seems motivated by the beheading of 4,500 Saxons. It seems motivated by two realities, uh, a vengeance, which is not admirable, two of his closest generals and friends that he, he lost in a preceding battle. But deeper than that, a kind of Old Testament morality uh, inspired by Jewish treatment of the Amalekites, the people who lived in Jericho, and of the Moabites. It is a fact Charlemagne is understanding himself as the new King David, not just a new Roman emperor, but the new King David. And even the chief scholar uh, at his court at Aachen, the English monk, Alcuin, refers to Charles as David. Ends don't justify means. It, it, it is so that Charles' harsh measures did eventually make safe the way of the cross in Saxony. Wittekind, the Saxon chieftain, accepts baptism. Charlemagne stands as his godfather. Uh, this, this is sort of foretelling what Alfred the Great would do in England uh, a century later for the vanquished Viking warlord, Guthrie. In defeating the Saxons, 
Charlemagne greatly expanded his empire by adding to it the entire breadth of the German regions and taking the eastern border of the empire all the way to the Elbe River. His one-time enemies now provided loyal and aggressive soldiers for subsequent campaigns against the Avars and against the Moors in Spain. In other words, the very people that he converted by the sword now joined him in fighting the enemies of the church on the borders of his empire. The religious nature of the war against the Saxons cannot be overstated. This is certainly how Charlemagne understood it. Saint Lebuin said to the Saxons, um, if you will not accept belief in God, there is a king in the next land who will conquer it and lay it waste. The book I recommend to you by Alessandro Barbaro, he says, the Saxon war was a ferocious war in a country with little or no civilization, with no roads, no cities, entirely covered with forests and marshland. The Saxons sacrificed human persons, prisoners of war to their gods, as Germans had always done before converting to Christianity. And the Franks did not hesitate to put to death anyone who refused to be baptized. So it is the religious character of this war that it brutal to be sure uh, that makes the war with the Saxons a kind of precursor to the Crusades, not only in the Holy Land, but think of the Crusades in the Baltic Sea, right? With the Teutonic Knights uh, that would be waged. The, uh, Charlemagne was an ideal to the Crusaders. That's beyond argument. I already mentioned the Song of Roland, which is among the chief cultural inspirations of the Crusaders. But what is more, when Urban II goes to the Council of Clermont in 1095. What does he do? He specifically names Charlemagne. He calls the Franks to live up to their legacy, right? Let the deeds of your ancestors move and incite your minds to the manly achievements, to the glory and greatness of King Charles the Great and of his son, Louis and of your other kings who have destroyed the kingdoms of the pagans and have extended in these lands the territory of the Holy Church. It was the same crusading spirit to which Urban referred three centuries later that led Charlemagne to break off his war for a time, to march with his army diagonally across his kingdom, across the Pyrenees to engage the Arabs in Spain. At this time, he takes advantage of internecine strife among the Muslims in Spain. He, he tries to ally himself with one of the Saracen princes, the governor of Barcelona. Uh, it's an unsuccessful allegiance. Uh, the Muslim governor of Saragossa betrays Charles. He refuses to send her the city. Charles besieges the city. But after a month, he has to return to silence the Saxons who have rebelled in his absence. And as I mentioned, the retreat across the Pyrenees and the savage massacre of his rear guard, actually not by Muslims, but by Basque Highlanders, um, witnessed the, 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 the death of uh, the prefect of the march, Rulandus, later called Roland in the chanson, right? Of the event, 
France's political historian, Francois Guizot writes, there is no determining how far history must be made to participate in these reminiscences of natural feeling. But assuredly, the figure of Roland and the pious, unsophisticated and tender character of his heroism are not pure fables invented by the fancy of a poet or the credulity of a monk. If the accuracy of the historical narrative must not be looked for in them, their moral truth must be recognized in their portrayal of the people of an age. The campaign was a short-term setback, but it did fire the heart of Christians in Spain who now look to Frank, to the Franks as their protectors. And from 1797 until 1810, through a series of incursions led by Charlemagne's son, Louis the Pious, they expanded the southwestern border of the, of the empire across the Pyrenees, all the way to the Ebro River, capturing Barcelona all along the way. This war concludes with what? The expelling of the Moors from Granada by Ferdinand Isabella in 1492. But this is where the Reconquista begins. On Charles's south, south, southeastern border, he engages the Avars, the savage horsemen from the steppes, so thoroughly that historians uh, regard the, the near extermination of this Asian war uh, to their war with the Franks. The, the result of this campaign was an extension of the Christian West into present-day Hungary as far as the Danube. Take it, so, so, we, so we have in our minds now the growing expanse, and looking at the map helps, the growing expanse under Charlemagne because of his military efforts. Charles is the undisputed ruler of Europe. These wars pave the way for what's to come next. The second matter for consideration is coronation as the emperor by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day, 800 AD. And I think this is the time we're going to take a break. Take it away with part two on Charlemagne. Look, to get our imaginations properly around the coronation event, Christmas Day, 800 AD, let's briefly review the deteriorating relationship between East and West. And I feel as if a lot of this history has doubtless been covered by the ICC. So I'll, I'll, we'll just go very quickly. So to begin, let's consider the question, how did there come to be an empire in the East in the first place? And the short answer, of course, is Diocletian, who rules the Roman Empire from 284 to 305. And, he, and the empire is in chaos, uh, and he restores order to the empire by doing what? Creating this thing that we call the Tetrarchy or the rule of four. And he divides the empire into East and West. When Constantine becomes emperor, he creates his capital city on the Bosporus. And Greek learning and philosophy and theology flower in the East, even as the empire in the West begins to face increased threats from German barbarians. Uh, the date that we traditionally assign to the fall of Rome in the West is 476, uh, but we all know the process was much more gradual. It was one of immigration as much as it was of periodic invasion. And it really wouldn't be until the age of Pope St. Gregory the Great 
that the church in the West would start to crawl out of the darkness of fallen Rome. But half a century before Gregory, the emperor in the East, a man named Justinian, attempted nobly, but in the end failed, to reestablish the rule of the empire on the Italian peninsula. What does this mean for the church in the West? She finds herself increasingly turning north to the Franks for protection of her territory and her work. The baptism of Clovis, which by the way, Clovis and Lewis, who knew this, right? Clovis and Lewis, same name. The baptism of Clovis in 496 begins this relationship, eldest daughter of the church, that grows more formal and more regulated, as we saw when, with our opening story, and with the reign of each passing French king. As this relationship is strengthening between Holy See and France, Unrest in Byzantium, indeed instability in Byzantium, uh, because of pressure from Islam, and also because of internal turmoil is picking up steam. The internal turmoil is complex. We should mention here it's manifested in the iconoclastic controversy, but all of it just makes the Roman popes interested in locating the center of secular rule in the West. Indeed, as the centuries pass, uh, Byzantine holdings in the Southern Italian peninsula are increasingly viewed as foreign occupation. And one that was really of little use, all, all, all these Greek peoples, in places like uh, Palermo, for example, if you've ever been to Palermo and see the Monreal, the most exquisite mosaics in the world. Why? Because they were put there by Greeks. Um, but, the, but the West just begins to view, we're painting with a very broad brush here, they just begin to view the, the, as kind of a, a foreign occupation. In, in the West, and really of very little use because the empire in the East can no longer, as we saw, protect the Eastern Empire, excuse me, protect the Holy See from the Lombards. And adding to this tension between East and West are a series of theological and liturgical controversies. The, but, the, but this mutual distrust and incomprehension reaches escape velocity, if you will, with the iconoclastic controversy, the year of 726. Um, so a little more, a little less than a century before the events of our story tonight, when the Byzantine emperor named Leo outlaws the use of icons in worship. Why does he do this? Uh, the move is part driven by an attempt to undermine the authority of the monasteries in the East. And he's also inspired by a heresy that has kind of a Jewish and Islamic flavor that the divine should not be represented in heart. Blood ran in the streets in Byzantine cities over this heresy. Uh, the heresy really largely went unnoticed in the West. Um, but it did further erode the relationship between the Holy See and the Byzantine Empire because the former 
now starts to regard the latter, the Holy See starts to regard the Byzantine Empire as not just incapable of protecting the church, but lunatic. By the time Charlemagne becomes king of the Franks, Pope Adrian I had, had, had stopped the practice, this is important, had stopped the practice of dating documents by the year of the rule of the Byzantine emperor and replacing them with what? The date of his own, the beginning of his own rule. He took the emperor's head off of Roman coins and ancient prayers that were offered for the emperor during the liturgy were replaced with prayers for the Frankish king. So quite apart from who was a good guy and who was a bad guy and, 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 and the mis and mysteries of iniquity and all of this um, that I've just brushed right over, uh, th th these were the events that happened and these were the consequences of so this is what they meant. In 1797, two years after Pope Leo III sends the chair of Peter, the final break between East and West comes the Empress Irene, political break, right? The Empress Irene, who had ruled as regent for her son, his name was Constantine VI, disinherited her son. He's 26 year old, 26 year old, and he and she has him blinded. We see this practice in the East. It's not a pleasant one. Uh, Pope Leo knew that it's time to create a new emperor. And he knows it's going to be Charles, the king of the Franks. So that's the quick history. The best way to understand the mind of Pope Leo III on what would become an, a, a, a turning point in history, absolutely, is to take a look at two mosaics. They are the mosaics that are commissioned for the Lateran Palace. They've been restored. If you go to Rome, you can see them. And they are preserved today in the triclinium that sits outside of the Basilica John Lateran in Rome. On one side, you have Jesus Christ handing the pallium to Pope Sylvester and the standard to Sylvester's contemporary. Uh, uh, so on one side, you have Christ handing the pallium to Pope Sylvester and the standard to Constantine. Uh, Christ handing the pallium to Pope Sylvester and the standard to Constantine on the left side as you're looking at it. So, so in that image, you have spiritual authority going to one and political authority coming to the other from Jesus Christ. On the other side of this mosaic, on the right side of the triumphal arch, you see St. Peter, and he's handing the pallium to Leo III and the banner to Charles, the king of the Franks. My friends, talk about a picture being worth a thousand words. This is, this says it all. It is now St. Peter and his successors who are the sources of secular rule. That is clearly 
what Leo is intending to state when he does, when he has these mosaics made. And it's what he's going to demonstrate on Christmas Day. So as the Pope's relationship with the Byzantine world grew more strained, so also did Charlemagne's. He agreed to the betrothal of his daughter, uh, you can uh, rotrude to Constantine VI, but in 1787, he refuses to let her go because the relationship between the courts have continued to deteriorate. Moreover, Charles involves himself in the iconoclastic controversy, and he even renders a theological judgment on this very complex question, a judgment, by the way, I should say that uh, Charles is not trained to render. Um, Nonetheless, the outcome was that Charles is no longer acknowledging the authority of Byzantine rulers in church matters. The usurpation of the throne by the Empress Irene gave Charles the impression uh, that these people had lost it, same impression that the Pope had. The Byzantine court is in a state of chaos. Frankly, it's, it's, it's lost its validity. So in the midst of all this, we have a growing mutual understanding between Pope and Charles concerning the role of the King of the Franks as the head of the Christian empire. And it's at this very moment it's in, it's in the, with, with all of these events between East and Papal States and King of the Franks, all, and King of the Franks and Pope growing closer, it's in the midst of all this political religious uh, unfolding, what happens? A coup to take the Papal throne from Leo starts to take shape. Who leads it? two of the leading clergy of the Roman Curia who happened to be nephews of the preceding Pope, a man named Adrian I. And they level charges against Leo, embezzlement, perjury, and of course, fornication. They seize him. And the story goes, um, he's in the middle of a liturgical procession outside Uh, They seize him, and uh, according to the hagiographic version, they rip out his eyes and his tongue. I think we can say at least that they attempted to. Um, The hagiography of Leo III, by the way, he is a saint, uh, goes on to report that his tongue and his eyes are miraculously restored by St. Peter himself. I have... No difficulty believing the story. In any case, um, he had his tongue and his eyes when he, following in the footsteps of the previous pope, flees to Rome, flees Rome, um, and uh, crosses uh, the Alps and goes to see Charles, this time at Paderborn, look under map, and he calls on the king of the Franks, to assume his role again as protector of the church and patrician of Rome and to restore the Pope to his throne. So that's the background. And then that's the proximate cause of this event of 800 AD. Uh, Charles deliberates with Alcuin. He sends the Pope back to Rome with an escort. 
uh, and a team of commissioners, uh, a couple of arch- archbishops, three bishops, two noblemen. He conducts an inquiry. They, they conduct an inquiry into the charges against Leo. Uh, they, th- we don't know what the commission found because there's no historical record. And we do know uh, from his own testimony that Alcuin burned the reports. Uh, and he notes in his correspondence, um, let, him, let him who was out without sin cast the first stone. Can we infer that there was something to the charges? Mm, I don't know. Uh, But Charles now realizes that he, if he's meant to absolve the Pope and reinstall him on his throne, this commission has not been sufficient to the cause and he's going to have to go to Rome to do it himself. And this he does. In the year 800, uh, and when he's 12 miles outside of Rome, outside the gates of Rome, the Pope comes to greet him. This distance is significant. It's twice the traditional distance used by the ancient Romans to greet victorious emperors returning from their conquests. On December 1st, Charles, as the new Constantine, right? Constantine opened councils formally opens a council to inquire into the accusations against Leo. I think we can say the event was a formality. Leo was given a chance to swear his innocence on a New Testament. This he swiftly did. The council, according to one contemporary account, unanimously agreed that Charles should be crowned the emperor. In essence, they regarded the throne in the East as thoroughly vacant, usurped by a woman. On Christmas Day, as Charles Charlemagne knelt in prayer at the very St. Peter's Basilica built by Constantine, he was crowned by Leo III, the new Constantine, and anointed with oil. We all know the basilica has since been replaced by Michelangelo St. Peter's, but those of you who have been there know that the large red porphyry disc on which Charlemagne knelt is preserved in the floor of the nave of the new basilica at the opposite end of the high altar. This was not just a a ritual or an honorific flourish as uh, Alessandro Barbaro says in his book, but it had the legal force in accordance with the Roman imperial tradition and it officially ratified the election of the new sovereign. So all, uh, remember in the previous section, we talked about capitularies, all the capitularies that Charles is sent forth, carried by his Missi Dominici, I think I have that on the handout, Missi Dominici. These were pairs of royal envoys, one clerical, one lay, who would carry forth to the far corners of his empire, ruling on every matter, monastic reform, literature, excuse me, liturgy, agriculture, law, all these now came with the force of the undisputed emperor of Christendom. It is to the cultural and political life that found its origin at Charles's court at Aachen that our third and final matter for consideration uh, to which we can now now turn. 
Even before his coronation, Charles was revealing his understanding of himself as the successor to the Roman emperor with the construction of his court at Aachen on the Rhine, right? The supervisor of the project is one of Charles's biographers, Einhardt, who oversaw a deliberate attempt to recreate the architecture and interior decoration of the buildings and churches of classical and Christian Rome. And also, by the way, the churches in Ravenna, especially San Vitale, which gave Aachen a decidedly Byzantine quality. Interestingly, this is the one building, this deliberate attempt to have an Eastern element, if you will, to the structures in Aachen. Um, this is the one structure that remains today, uh, the Palatine Chapel. That's, it's spectacular. To the palace at Aachen, Charles assembled the greatest scholars in the West. And we can imagine from their debates, their exchanges, the poems, the correspondence, much of which is extant, uh, that gives a sense that they're, they're, this is one of the, those moments in history, right, where the conversation is most sparkling, most inspiteful. Just imagine the, how erudite the after-dinner conversation would have been at Aachen. The brightest lights among the Palatine scholars weren't Franks, right? Paul the Deacon, uh, whose history of the Lombards, probably one of the most important medieval documents. Peter of Pisa, uh, one of the most distinguished grammarians of the age. The poet. Um, Paulinus, uh, these men were Italians. Um, Theodolf and Agabird were Goths who had fled uh, Muslim-occupied Spain. The most important of the Palatine scholars, Alcuin, was uh, Northumbrian from York. Uh, and under his guidance, uh, a classical orthography was restored to the Latin language. What's an orthography? An, an, an agreed-on um, this is how we spell words, right? And the orthography of Latin, we can just say, had really suffered mightily uh, in the hands of the Franks during uh, the centuries after the fall of Rome. So Latin, the Latin language, were, were precision and uh, were restoring. Uh, but not just the technical and restoration of the Latin language, these scholars are determined to preserve as many of the great Latin texts of the classical age that they can. On this score, my friends, our debt is quantifiable. Nearly the entire corpus of Latin poetry, Virgil, Ovid, Horace, Juvenal, uh, to name the best known of dozens, is preserved for us. Why? Because of the copying of manuscripts performed at Aachen and at the other schools of the Carolingian Renaissance. It's the same with Latin prose. Cicero, Livy, Seneca, Suetonius, the great historian. Uh, these are all available to us because they were saved and copied, annotated, studied, and taught in the scriptoria of Charlemagne. We, we, as I say, this is quantifiable. We can put a figure on this contribution. The number of surviving classical manuscripts and fragments dating 
from the period 0 AD to 800 AD is about 800. The number of copies of classical works dating from 800 to 900, that is just the next uh, 100 years, 7,000. That's the debt to this school. This work that's being done by the scholars in Aachen, this is an act of piety. It's an act of piety, respect for what comes before. It's worth noting, by the way, that children uh, of slaves and freemen both attended the schools of the Carolingian Renaissance. Charlemagne knew there's not going to be a cultural or religious renewal without schools. Institutional schools run by the church date back to or just before this period. These are among the greatest, the church's greatest treasures. And to be very frank, the church's lack of serious support of schools today, and here I'm specifically meaning uh, grade schools, right, is is scandalous. And it also offends against this piety, a failure to treasure the legacy of this heroic Christian age. Indeed, where the Carolingian Renaissance is distinguished from the Italian one of 600 years later is that it's not pursuing learning for learning's sake, right? Or for humanism. And I, I, and I mean that humanism in the good sense of study of humane letters, right? To better understand man, okay? But it's not, it's not pursuit of learning for the sake of learning, but rather learning for the sake of spreading the gospel. Charles is a man of an era that saw things in terms quite a bit more black and white than we do, praise God. But he was not so simple to believe that the capitulation of a Saxon tribe, or, the, or frankly, if you want to say it this way, the brutal conquest of a, of a Saxon tribe, followed by their accepting Christian baptism, is going to settle once and for all the evangelization of a region whose pagan practices go back to pre-recorded history. By the way, the whole Institute for Catholic Culture exists because evangel- Catholic answers exist because evangelization is continuous. And, and John Paul... Pope John Paul II, Pope St. John Paul spoke of a new evangelization. He's talking about evangelizing the, excuse me, catechizing uh, or evangelizing the sacramentalized people who had baptism, but it just kind of stopped there. So Charles knows that if Christianity is going to take hold in recently conquered lands, he has to establish centers of worship and learning. The ICC is part of this patrimony run by educated clerics and an educated noble class. For Charles, the cultivation of the mind, even with the pagan classics of of, of Greece and Rome especially, was something that was done in the service of the cultivation of the soul. And by this, Charles means explicitly Christian formation. The Carolingian Renaissance is a period, this is in Alessandro Barbaro, in which culture, and particularly education were revived for the express purpose of reforming or rather rectifying the way the church worked and the way Christian people lived. So I keep underscoring this point. This is the thing to take away if you take away nothing else. Whoever attempts to please God by living righteously must not Neglect to please him by speaking righteously, Charlemagne would write to the bishops. In other words, 
He's telling the bishops that an uneducated, uneducated Episcopal class has no business governing the church. Uh, this is this is reminiscent of um, a, a line in St. John Christendom that also that often gets misquoted as, you know, this, the, 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 the road to hell is paved with skulls of bishops or the floor of hell is carpeted with the skulls of bishops. I, I don't think he actually said that, but something he did, in fact, say in his in one of his sermons on the Acts of the Apostles is I do not think there are many among, among bishops who will be saved but many more that will perish. And the reason is this, it is an affair that requires a great mind. Many are the exigencies which throw a man out of his natural temper and he has need of a thousand eyes on all sides. Do you not see what a number of qualifications the bishop must have? So John Chrysostom knew it. Charlemagne knew it. The Frankish clergy before Charlemagne didn't just suffer from ignorance. Uh, they suffered from iniquity. Boniface wrote to Pope Zachari Zachary in 742. He said, the bishops have not met in council for over 80 years. Most of the Episcopal sees are occupied by avaricious laymen or adulterous, licentious, licentious and worldly clerics. Bishops make no claim not to be fornicators and adulterers, and they drink and neglect their duties and spend their time hunting. The deacons, or at least those who go by this title, are people who live in sin. They take four or five concubines to their bed, but they feel no shame when reading the gospel. As sovereign of the Christian people, Charles made it his responsibility to reform the clergy, but not just the clergy, the laity as well. And this he did with a comprehensive empire-wide program of catechesis and a tightening and publishing of the code of canon law. Alcuin and the better bishops wrote tracts on fundamental moral and theological questions, especially concerning the sacraments of baptism, confession, uh, baptism and confession, so that the clergy would have a genuine understanding of these sacraments. And 750 years before the Council of Trent, Charlemagne imposed a series of liturgical reforms He's aided by Alcuin in this to make uniform throughout the empire, the celebration of the Roman rite, the mass of Gregory the Great. Some people, wrote Charles, who wish to pray to God correctly, pray incorrectly because of incorrect books, right? What do the French say? Plus que change, right? The more things change. Hundreds of Charles's Missi Dominici, the, these, the, these, these people going off in twos, one layman, one cleric, crisscrossed the empire, delivering edicts, the capitularies, and seeing that they were followed. These envoys would examine clergy on their knowledge of scripture, and they listened to as they recited the liturgy to make sure that it was being done correctly. 
Charlemagne himself would join in this work. There's an occasion uh, that Charlemagne is at the presence of a baptism and he quizzes the godparents on the creed and the Our Father. And according to Charlemagne's account, there were very many of them who did not know it all. He was dismayed to write. Uh, the creed, of course, was of central importance to a man who clearly thought deeply concerning theological questions. This is a complex tale. We use the filioque formula in the West in the creed. Uh, we can say in part because of Charlemagne's interventions, clumsy as they may have been, on behalf of this doctrine. Um, doesn't happen in his lifetime, but it, it does get adopted. Uh, both the scope and the precision of Charlemagne's reforms are hard to overstate. In grammar and rhetoric, in theology and exegesis, in canon law and liturgy, he corrected error and published truth. And he even standardized the letters of the Roman alphabet to avoid misinterpretation of his texts. What do we call this alphabet? The Carolingian minuscule, I think I, or minuscule, I think it's pronounced minuscule. I put that on your handout as well. Um, and it persisted for four centuries afterwards. It's difficult to overstate how unique a man Charlemagne was. History offers no shortage of leaders who are possessed of this or that virtue or skill that enables them to leave their imprint on their age and on those ages to come. We think of Alexander the Great's military legacy that owes much to his prowess on the battlefield, his capacity to inspire, his exceptional command for logistics. Philip II of Spain, extraordinary power for administration, built the greatest empire of the modern age on which the sun never set, right? But it really is difficult to name another historical figure possessed of so many of the virtues of which we would hope to find expression in the personality of a Christian king. Charlemagne was a great military commander, a great administrator, and a great diplomat, diplomat, but he was also a fervent and loyal son of the Catholic Church, a man genuinely concerned about his own salvation and the salvation of his subjects. He understood the value of learning, especially among those to whom the care of souls was to be entrusted. He knew that the priests of his kingdom should speak Latin, the language of anyone who considers himself a citizen of the Christian West. Charlemagne's twilight years were peaceful, if marred by the sorrow of his outliving his firstborn son, Charles, and his third, King Pepin of Italy. Moreover, Though the wars with the Saxons and the Avars had ended, his border in Spain had been established now south of the Pyrenees to the Ebro River. 
he found himself conceding the Venetian lagoon back to the Byzantine Empire. Worse, the dark clouds of a new threat to the Christian Empire that he had built were forming in the north. Northmen, Norsemen, or Vikings. They had already begun their coastal raiding, striking the English monastery of Lindisfarne in 793 and massacring the monks at this famous outpost of Christendom. Charles's grandson, Charles the Bald, would see the savage Scandinavians in their clinker-built ships penetrating deep into the empire, even along the Seine in Paris. The emperor's southern coast saw another, saw another gathering of pirates, Moors fired by the warlike tenets of Islam and the prospect of slaves and booty who began raiding the Mediterranean coast and the villages of the Italian peninsula. In 798, two years before Charles's coronation, African corsairs had sacked Menorca and Majorca and in aid of the, the Balearics, right? From which Nipper would eventually come Majorca and in 806 Corsica. Within four decades, the Saracens would travel up the Tiber and sack the Eternal City herself, including the very St. Peter's where Charlemagne had received his crown. It was in response to this raid that the wall that you see now around Vatican City, the Leonine Wall, was built by Leo VI. To this day, that stands there. Charles remained in Aachen for his final years. Even at his coronation at St. Peter's in 800 AD, he had been an old man for his time, 60 years old. Yet he remained vital enough, frequent fever and arthritis notwithstanding. He liked into his old age to hunt and ride and much to Einhard's consternation to drink beer up to just a few months before his death. Had Charles been able to divide his empire among his three sons, they might well have been able to manage the challenge that their father's strength of will kept alive, but only Louis the Pious survived. He was the most devout. He was the best student of the three, but he was not the strongest political leader. He divided the kingdom among his three sons, and the borders very much today suggest the modern countries of France and Germany. We'll conclude there. I left you with a passage from Christopher Dawson's The Making of Modern Europe. It's on that handout. I encourage you to read that uh, eloquently explaining Charlemagne's legacy. Thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Christopher. Check. So Bernadette, we'll go ahead and start with you if you'd like. So my question is, um, well, and also you made me realize how much that uh, Charlemagne was truly, truly a father, was truly a father um, for the, of this continent. I think that he really, uh, he really has all the virtues that we search for in a leader. Uh, and... Um, I would say that if if he had if I had been around under his rule, I would have 
felt very, very much, um, you know, cared for and looked after. And I think also that he he would be a good um, example for all the fathers. We have a crisis of fatherhood right now, and uh, I think globally, um, but also especially in, in our country. And he would definitely be an example. Um, and so my question is, um, if you could, if you could um, uh, uh, repeat what you had said about when he was, um, when Charlemagne was uh, crowned on Christmas Day, 800 AD, you said that, uh, um, so I, I took some notes that uh, it had, it was not just a empty ceremony, that it was actually, it had the legal force of a God. I think that's what you're trying to say, oh. that he had the legal force of God and, and, and that it officially ratified and that's all I got was officially ratified. So if you could, sure. So, um, so, oh, sure, sure, sure. So um, a couple of things. Let me answer your first question. And then I do want to uh, speak to the question of Charlemagne's fatherhood. Um, uh, because we, we should be honest here as well. Um, but uh, the, the coronation carries with it two... Uh, forces. One is the tradition of the Roman Imperium. The, the, the tra he, he is understanding himself to be, and those witnessing this are understanding him to be a successor of the Roman emperors, in particular, oh. Constantine. In particular, Constantine. Um, and my goodness, there's an abundance on Constantine, I know, on the ICC website. So so it carries with it, Father Ezekiah, of course, was talking about tradition. It carries with it the political tradition and understanding written on the hearts of, of, of the Roman people. And now when we say Roman people, we don't simply mean the people of the Italian peninsula, but the people of this empire, which is finding expression now in France, Germany, back into Spain, even into Hungary, as the empire in the East is wrought with religious and political turmoil. So it carries with it this force of the Roman Empire, the, the, the legacy of the Roman emperors. And it also carries with it, and just go back and take a look at that image of the of the mosaic in the triclinium uh, at the Lateran Palace, which is actually exposed to the elements. You can see it when you go to the Lateran um, and it's been restored. Look at that mosaic and the triumphal arch of th th this mosaic is commissioned by Leo III. It, 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 it is commissioned by Leo III to tell the story of the relationship between the church and the emperor. And so on the left side, we see Jesus Christ giving the political authority, the standard, uh, and to, 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 to Constantine, and then the keys to the papacy. But on the other side, we see it's St. Peter giving to Leo and Charlemagne the religious and political authority. So it is now from the church 
that that is the expression that is made publicly clear by this event. It is from the church that that, that Charlemagne receives his authority and also from this ancient Roman imperial tradition. To the question of uh, Charlemagne's fatherhood, I strongly recommend this book by Alessandro Barbaro or Barbaro. It's in Italian, but it's it's translated by the translation is is very good. I mean, it's not like I know Italian enough to tell you, but it, it reads well. Um, Alan, Alan Cameron, he it's it's a, it's a, it's a it's a engaging read, and he goes into the business of Charlemagne's family life. So there are several wives and also concubines, and there are children, um, legitimate and natural. And, uh, and and so we, we do have even it, it, it's not sufficient simply to say, well, th- the church is not uh, ha- ha- hasn't had the opportunity to make entirely clear what the teaching on marriage is. I mean, it, it, it's it's realized as a sacrament from Jesus Christ, to be sure the church is slow in the development of this doctrine. But. A monogamy is something that takes a while to introduce to the barbarians and and the Franks. And even if you look, go back and look at the correspondence between Boniface and the Pope at the time, there's a kind of a latitude that we might find scandalous about what they're willing to put up with. As far as, for example, there's one letter from Boniface where he's asking the Pope, well, what about a what about one of these chieftains? who is just, you know, being denied the affections of, of his wife. And, you know, can he, can he take another one? And, and uh, without as much saying that this is a moral act, the Pope says, well, this is going to be something we're going to tolerate for a time. And so we see some toleration of this behavior in Charlemagne, but also even his contemporaries find it a little off-putting, um, his, his appetite, in this regard. And, and also as a father, he is a little too indulgent of his children, his, his natural and legitimate children, and some of their own um, transgressions. Um, I think if we're going to look for a fatherhood example among the French kings, I would point to St. Louis, uh, the one French king who is in fact a saint. And uh, and by the way, there are not a lot of king saints, right? It's a hard thing to be a saint if you're a king. Um, but I would especially refer people to when St. Louis was dying on crusade. So whatever that is, the fifth or the seventh crusade, depending on how you count them um, there in, in Libya, um, you know, in the shadow of the old Roman wall, uh, he writes a letter to his son. And it's one of the great, it's just one of the great examples of this uh, art form, if you will, letters of fathers to sons. So we might look to St. Louis uh, necessarily rather than Charlemagne. But to your point, he genuinely did care for his people. He genuinely did care for them in it in a way that, that we can say is charitable. That is, he loved them. He desired what was good for them. And so in this sense, to be sure, exhibited very much the quality of a father there. Okay, we're going to ask one more question. Oh, before... sweet. See, I give a very long answer, so I limit the number of questions. 
just kind of this is sort of um, extending what you were just talking about and and sort of taking a crit- a critical look at, at the fatherhood of Charlemagne. But uh, Linda asks, what are the main secular criticisms of Charlemagne and, and how do you respond to them? Are there any that are valid? So generally, they fit into a category um, such as this, that Charlemagne is not really the father of Europe in the sense that we would like to claim uh, his empire really fell apart shortly after he died. He, like Attila or Alexander, it just kind of all fell to pieces. Now, I think those are overstated. Attila's actually did fall apart. And he retreated. Alexander's does as well. But but I would turn. No, I do. I do not think they're valid. And I and I think that Christopher Dawson in that passage that. Uh, I I gave you to read, and I would encourage you to look at, he starts with this point, the historical importance of the Carolingian age far transcends its material achievement. It marks the first emergence of the European culture from the twilight of prenatal existence into the consciousness of active life. Hitherto the barbarians had lived passively, on the capital which they had inherited from Roman civilization, which they had plundered. And now they began to cooperate with it in a creative social activity. So as early as the um, Enlightenment, you've got on like Voltaire, who's famous for his quip, you know, neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, right? Um, but in, in fact, it, it was. And in one form or another, it does persist uh, into the early 20th century with the Habsburgs. Um, So yes, the political legacy of Charlemagne is uneven. And I won't say that we have to strain to find the connections, but there are periods where it's broken and, and restored. But this understanding of uh, church and states so unified finds its expression here. This is where it finds its greatest expression, uh, beginning with Charlemagne and then, of course, flowering uh, in, in the subsequent centuries, 12th, um, 13th, even with all of its problems in the 14th and 15th centuries. Uh, this is this is where it begins to find this expression. And if you are approaching history apart from acknowledging the, the religious motives that so clearly drive what Charlemagne did, um, then you're going to look for other uh, causes. Uh, a very famous one has, to, and I've forgotten the name of it, has to do with incursions of uh, Muslims into the the Mediterranean world and the dueling economies, for example. So you're gonna look for other pressures, political, economic, even necessarily ethnic pressures. But if we wanna look at, we have by his own testimony and by the contemporary accounts of why Charlemagne did what he did 
this is the these are the motives that I've been at pains to describe in the last um, in the last couple of hours. So. Hmm. Well, Christopher Check, it was incredible. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Would you mind closing us in prayer? Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Louis of France, pray for us. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.